Well, hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Wheelhouse Cycling Podcast. Catherine Bates and I'm joined by the one and only Hank Vogels. Just in time for Christmas, Hank. Oh, it's so good to be here at this time of the year as well. I love it. I've got my um, Mrs. Claus, do we call it Mrs. Claus, apron on. Um, we've got a Santa hat for you there. You can chuck that on. It's um, it's summer. We're gearing up for a hot Christmas, Hank. Have you been out on the bike? I get out on the bike very early with the boys at about 5, 5.15 in the morning. And I'm the only reason I do it is so I'm at the brew shop by 7 o'clock. And at the latest, otherwise I just don't do it. I just wouldn't get up and ride. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can eat all the Christmas ham. Yes. All the Christmas all, ham. Yeah, all the pies during the year and all the Christmas ham and... <laughs> All the great foods, trifle and all those lovely Dutch treats we used to have when oh, mum yes. was, you know, making them when I was living back at home as a little tacker. Joel is missing. Joel, we miss you, man. Uh, he's been a little bit under the weather, uh, oh. Hank, but um, you're keeping his seat warm. Yes. So thank you. Just, just keeping it warm, Joel. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> That's all I'm doing. Just making sure that point gets across. Well, it's... Joel and I have had some good laughs this year at some of the shenanigans that have been going on, but we've loved the off-season. Like, never has an off-season had so much to talk about. You'd think it would be the downtime, uh, but we're going to go through some of the off-season news that has dropped uh, this week. We're talking about Pogaccia to the Giro. Uh, Bradley Wiggins, he's got a bit of imposter syndrome, or so he told the BBC. Um, we're going to talk about a new cycling league uh, Hank, a super league. Uh, before we hit record, you had some fruity words to describe that. Uh, we'll get into that. And we're going to talk NRS and ARA and everything that you are up to um, plotting world domination with your domestic team. Oh, let's get into it. Let's Can't get wait. into it. Uh, we're going to start with um, today Pogaccia. Now, he has uh, announced this week that he will be riding the Giro. He will then be riding the Tour de France. Uh, he's going to the Olympics uh, and also the World Championships. Massive program. Mm. Doing the double, the Giro Tour de France double. What do you think? I mean, what's your initial uh, feedback? Because I can tell you mm. the fans are going bananas, Hank. Like They are so excited to see him at both. Is it inspired genius or is it madness? Well... I reckon it's a little bit of madness. <laughs> um, um, on a personal note, I was I was asked to do the Giro in 2006 after leading Robbie out, I don't know, for all his Giro wins and then going to the Tour. And I was absolutely cooked after doing the Giro. Mind you, I did the classics, which Pogaccia will do as well. So he'll do the classics, he'll do the Giro, then the Tour, and then the Olympics, and then the Worlds. Like... There's not many people on earth that have made that happen. And t I'll tell you what, there's going to be somebody pretty, pretty happy that he's doing the Giro and that, that little, uh, his nemesis in um, uh, Vingegaard. Because oh. I think when you go to the Giro, it's a massive risk. It really is a massive risk because you go so deep. Um, it's a touch and go whether you're as good in, at the tour. And that's why Lance never did it. And he won seven tours. Well, well the last time it was done, uh, winning both was Pantani. And that was in 1998. And I actually picked up his book uh, by Matt Rendell uh, in the thrift store this morning uh, around the corner. So hmm. somebody's read it and said, uh, pass that on. Pantani, of course, has a you know, very interesting story from a very different era. Do you think it's possible for a modern day 
athlete, because times have changed, to do the double? It de- depends on how deep he has to go in, in May. I mean, if he goes super deep in May and goes right, gets has a massive fight on his hands to go, you know, beyond, you know, as hard as he has to win the tour, when he won the tour, even as a, that hard, then recover and then come back and be good in the last, second to third week in the Tour de France. I reckon he's going to struggle against Jumbo. But I, then I why really would do. he? Why is he doing it? Like, where's this come from? Well, he may be thinking, listen, I'll do the Giro, it's going to make me incredibly strong, I'll recover and I'll be even better than I was. Which, I mean, I did read an article on him saying that there's other people that have actually said, no, you're crazy, don't do that, we need to be good in July, not May. So maybe he's going to take the Giro and see how he goes and he thinks, okay, all the world's best riders are in July, so, you know, I'll tell everyone else up in May when the Giro... And they'll all be frightened of me in July. So, I mean, I'm just trying to go through this guy's psyche here right now. And I don't know. But he's won two Tour de France's from the age of, by the time he's 22. So, I mean, he obviously thinks he can beat him. So, uh, you wouldn't do that unless you think you can win both. And he's obviously just come out and said to his, like, I don't care. I'm doing it. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I can actually do this. Where everyone else is going, hang on. Uh, he's been held. The reins have been let off, I think. So... That's what I think's happened. Yeah. Well, I know the fans are excited. Um, Merksy, you were pretty excited, uh, almost like a child on Christmas morning when you found out. Um, I am pumped. I cannot wait. March the 2nd, his first race, World Tour race at Strada Bianchi. Ooh, well, he'll start the season in the classics. Now, Hank, aside from the fact that physically it's pretty exhausting to try and do the double... How do you mitigate the risks around the falls and that sort of stuff? Because we're seeing now so much nervousness at the beginning of these Grand Tours. I mean, same thing every year, right? This is the most crashes we've ever seen. And the older riders always say the younger riders have no respect. And we hear the same. It's like a broken record. We hear it every year. But it's real. And some of these guys have multiple falls within a single race. So how, as a team, do they protect him from that sort of thing? To make sure he just gets through it. Well, I re- firstly, I reckon he's a really good bike handler. Like, you know, let's talk about some people that maybe weren't so good. You know, Froomey and, and Richie seem to always be lying on the floor somewhere along the way. And with the utmost respect to both of those guys. Garrett um, Thomas, I call him um, Autumn Leaves. Yeah. Because so, he se- yeah. <laughs> seems to fall so much. Yeah. So <laughs> there's guys who seem to be on the ground all the time and there's guys who are just like cats who can just find their way out of a problem. I reckon he's one of them. I mean, Lance crashed once, I reckon, in seven mm. or eight attempts in the Tour de France. He was, But also, if you've got a really good team, they're surrounding you. You're not taking risks. And, you know, that's what it actually means to be professional too. Like a professional cyclist knows when to take risks. You don't win the Tour de France. It's the old saying, you don't win the Tour de France on the descent. You can lose it though on the descent. So... People don't take stupid risks and you surround yourself with your teammates and if it's wet, don't go, don't be stupid, you know. I mean, I mean, the thing is he's so young, so the, the, he's got a good head on his shoulders. So, um, But obviously a very good bike handler. So for that, yeah, that's that's one thing I think. You either do or you don't. You either fall or you don't or you fall. Don't. You're, you're, you're a crasher or a non-crasher. I don't know how we can, can even <laughs> can make a new category out of that one, I think. Can Mercy? Hey. Hey. Hank, you've ridden Roubaix. 
right? You've yeah. ridden Roubaix. And Pogacar seems like he wants to win everything. Mm. What's he got to do to change his body to, to ride and win Roubaix? He just needs to get in the gym a bit and then start training a bit earlier. Once he wins three or four tours, he's going to start going after that stuff. So stay tuned, Merksy. Yeah. He's on He's on ski. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I want to talk about the implication this might have on the Aussie Jay Vine. Uh, he had a bit of a rough season. He started with a brilliant win at Tour Down Under, but then he really got lost in the wilderness. Um, we had big hopes for him, though. I think Aussie fans after Tour Down Under thought mm. that he would really be the next in line, you know, nipping at the heels of Pogaccia. Uh, he did come back at Tour of Turkey and have a really brilliant win, which I think was very symbolic for him because mm. uh, he he might have been one of the only ones, he and um, his close team, who held that faith in him mm. uh, when people were um, talking about, you know, had, he, had his talent been overplayed. Do you think that having Pogaccia go to two grand tours, that will help Jay Vine because it, it will give him quite a clear job mm. uh, if he is on one of the teams for that rather than putting all the pressure on him and – uh, skewing his season in that way? I think Jay needs to start looking at another very good domestic rider by the name of Sepp Kuss and start modelling his career on that. And when you start going, okay, listen, I'm going to be the absolute super domestic. I'm going to be Pogacar's number one, the last guy with him in the Giro and the Tour or pick one or the other, um, then you are... then elevating yourself from someone who can win a mountaintop finish in a race or to be the next best guy next to Bogacha because you are then your value just going up and up and up because you see what happened has happened to Sepp Kuss now he's now next level you know he's always incredible but um an incredible climber but now we're looking at him at god status at legend status that he you know wins wins the Walter and he may have had some help but you know that's uh, that's where he needs to start thinking. I mean, Jay is incredible. Um, unfortunately, I put him in the same bracket as Richie and Vroomy, where <laughs> he needs to be a little bit more cautious, um, make some better decisions. But his climbing and his time trialing are world class, elite level, some of the best in the world. So he can definitely elevate himself in the Grand Tour scheme of things. He just needs to put himself as his right hand man, as as the Pogs' right hand man, and. We're looking at another set course and possibly another Cadet Levens. How good is that? I hadn't really thought about him in the the way of set course, but I, I think that that's brilliant. Uh, now, speaking of brilliant riders, uh, I want to change topics a little bit here. Um, we're here on the Wheelhouse Cycling Podcast uh, with Kate Bates and Hank Vogel sitting in the chair today. Um, let's talk about Bradley Wiggins. Uh, he's one of the greatest cyclists um, of the last generation. And uh, he won a Tour de France, of course, Olympic gold. Uh, but he's come out on a podcast this week, Hank. Um, the podcast is called Imposter Syndrome. So I think that probably says a lot about it. Uh, but he said that his biggest motivation was being told by his father that he would never make it and never be any good. Uh, hmm. i got to tell you, that hit me hard when I when I listened to that because I thought... Um, you often hear the stories about the good motivations um, and how somebody was so helpful and supportive and what a wonderful dream team. Uh, but Bradley Wiggins had quite a different journey. And you 
you know this story quite well, don't you, Hank? Because his father um, was an Aussie, actually, lived in Australia. Mm. Yeah, I I have uh, obviously been my my cycling heritage is my father used to race in the 60s um race against eddie Merckx actually and what he was part of the australian cycling scene through the 70s 80s and 90s um so my dad knew and a lot of my dad's friends knew of brad wiggins's dad and um i heard that he was a very very good bike rider but also a bad bastard he was really not not a nice man at all and you know uh take that as you want but um you know he he and his life ended in very poor circumstances and um the story goes that brad went to actually go and get to go to his dad's funeral and turned around and came home so i find that really difficult to hear actually that you would your motivation is coming from uh, that point but um i've been told in my career that I would never ever make it and um, that spurred me on so maybe you know that it is a big motivation for him that and um, what a rider he was and what he ended up doing um, after getting that that uh, that uh, that talking to by the old man was uh, pretty unbelievable to be one of the first ever track Olympians to then go out and win a Tour de France and change your whole body shape and however he did it was was incredible because yep. we, we, we lived through all that um, to see him go from an incredibly powerful track t- pursuiter to a world-class climber and winning Tour de France was beyond belief and we didn't think we could do it and no one could think that would be humanly possible, but he did it. So it yeah. was a bit of a trailblazer. Well, and he had um, in his coaching circle, Shane Sutton, of course, and Shane almost became the father that he didn't have. Mm. And of course, Shane comes from Moree uh, in New South Wales. He's an Aussie, um, brother of Gary Sutton. We know Sutter very well. Mm. He was my coach. Mm. Uh, and so it feels to me uh, like that the motivation coming from being criticised by his father he was able to channel into a pretty positive way. We do talk about athletes, mm. what motivates them. And I don't know about you, but I always get asked by people, oh, what motivated you? And it's actually a hard question to answer. You don't wake up every morning with a checklist of things that are getting you out of bed. It's more like a deeper fire and a passion. Mm. Oh, I agree. I mean, I, I like I said before, I had certain people say that I'd never make it. Oh, come uh, on, do, d- tell us one, because I was talking last week about a coach who told me that I should go back to university. Yeah, Charlie Walsh. <laughs> Charlie Walsh said, you'll never make it. You oh. don't have the physiology at all to be make it. So you're you're just, he actually called me pack filler. Pack filler? Yeah, yeah. You're just here so you can finish the races in Europe so we can get starts for next year. So I, he only actually took me to do the road, which was awesome, because I didn't give a rat's ass about, like, the track stuff I was doing and I was in the Olympic track team going to the Barcelona Olympics. I just wanted to be a road pro. So I'm riding the Sedamana Bergamasca with Lance Armstrong going, beauty, um, getting up the road in breakaways and riding, you know, with uh, Vladimir Belli and Fabio Casatelli. And um, I'm just pack filler, which was awesome for me <laughs> because um, because I'm racing the best races in Italy as pack filler and then end up having a road career, which is 15 years long. So it was uh, I was pretty happy to be pack filler. <laughs> There's a pretty iconic photo of you at Paris-Roubaix uh, running top 10. And it was, you know, 
back in the pre-helmet days, so yeah. you look totally Madness. badass with all the mud all over your mm. face. Uh, is that in one of those moments where you were thinking, hey, Charlie, check this out? Oh, no, I never gave Charlie an actual another thought after that because I was I motivated myself. Like, I remember that being told that. And I was like, you know, I'll effing show you, mate. But um, but uh, for me, I just wanted to win. I, my career was about, you know, me being the best. It wasn't about trying to show him who was the best. And, you know, I had a great role model in my, in my dad who was also an Olympian. So for me, it was huge. Because uh, you're Hank Jr. Yes. I'm Hank the third or Hank the Derda. Yes which is uh, in Dutch, the third. <laughs> I'm actually Hendrikus Bernard Fohl's the third, de Derda. Uh, so uh, my dad was Hendrikus and my old pa, which is my grandfather, he was also Hendrikus. So I'm like the third. And anyway, I cut that off at the knees when I moved to Australia. And I, you know when you go to a roll call and you're like, oh, Jenny Smith, yeah, hands up. Hendrikus Bernard Vogels. <laughs> and everyone giggled and I was like, yeah, put my hand up. Yes. I was like, you know, so I cut that off in the knees with my three three boys so uh, but yeah so that for me the motivation um, certainly was my own but you know I had some great role models and it's also good I think it's good to be told you can't make it and you find the fire within yourself to do it I'm Kate I'm sure you you had your role models as well with your with your family which is obviously huge in cycling too but for me it was always was always about how about myself and what I could what I could do yeah more so I mean than anyone else if I mean I had a bit of a dream team with my mum and dad but it mm. as much as that and, and Sutto I wanted to make them proud it mm. wasn't that the motivation came from them it was that given that they'd given me so much support I did feel mm. a little bit indebted to repay that we're going to change topics here because I feel like we could talk about our dads all day. There's another podcast for that. We could make yeah, a, a separate podcast for that. Um, but I want to talk to you about these murmurs, these whispers out of Saudi Arabia about a Super League. Mm. Mm. They've been talking about it. We often talk here on the wheelhouse about uh, WTF UCI. It's become a bit of a segment, actually. Cause uh, agreed. Yeah, <laughs> it's always something. Uh, I mean, I think in the last couple of weeks, they've cracked down on sock height. Now it's the levers. Oh, now they've, yeah, the levers can't point in, bend in. Because My whole team is going to be dark because all their levers are all bent in. Oh, see, it. sometimes I can see reason in it. Other times it seems madness. But fair to say, as a whole, anybody who has encountered the mm. UCI thinks that they're a bit of an antiquated business and they could do better. And so they keep popping up with these new ideas, a new cycling league, something like this. Mm. But what do you think? I mean, is there anything wrong with how it's working at the moment? And would something like a super league with a ton of money actually work? Would it be a positive game changer for the sport? Uh, it, the idea, the ideology, yes, 100%. We need to make it like the NBA. We need to, you know, get rid of just individual sponsors coming in and we need... You know, all the money coming into the one place and then feeding the teams their 35 million euros each Mm. for the year. 15 teams or whatever it is. And every single sponsor just sponsors the UCI or the new league. But it's been tried before with Tinkoff tried to get onto it. Vorders is very, Jonathan Vorders is very interested and always active in trying to make things better in cycling. And I think he's, I think he's great. And he would be someone who would, I think, could lead it. 
Um, but don't tell me if it's coming out of Saudi that we're going to have six rounds in Saudi Arabia or in the dirt because it just doesn't work. Like you need fans and the spectators are just not there. So yes, the money can maybe is coming from there, um, but it can't. We can't just have you can't just have a full, you know, six rounds in the Middle East somewhere. I mean, yes, Turkey's a great race, and Tour Qatar is a great windy race once a year. But you know, you need the fifty deep fans on the Quaramont and Tour of Flanders and Roubaix and Giro de Lombardia and Milan San Remo and Tour de France Giro of Walter. You need the Romandy Swiss. You need. You know, races in Quebec City and the US and Philly and you need that whole global sport. You can't just make it like, you know, in the Middle East somewhere with, you know, $17 trillion of, you know, they've got so much money. But, you know, the, the, the interest in sport. I mean, this tri- they tried to do this with Live Golf recently, right? They did. And it ended up merging back together. It merged back together. Uh, That's right. I, I would say if one of the athletes who on value said I'm not going to sign with Live Golf mm. and then they came back together, they would be, be empty pocketed. Yes. Well they got huge yeah. coin, right? Out yeah. of that. Some of those golfers got huge coin. Um I, I think it has to happen. I mean it's every year you just hear a struggle of these teams, you know, and especially I mean, look at the biggest budgets. You know, when Sky had the biggest budget, they were pantsing everyone. Now, you know, I'm not sure whether they still have the biggest budget and Jumbo and our trump them and now they're pantsing everyone but it's got there's got to be some you know you know is Arkea going as good as Jumbo Visma because the budget discrepancy well do you think a budget uh, I've floated this before like a salary cap like yeah. all the teams on the same budget would that be a yes. big game changer it would be a big game changer I reckon and, and I, I think you shouldn't be able to have more than two riders over a certain amount of money and you know each team should try and get you know you've got two marquee riders and you have there's minimum salary and then you have a, a salary cap and then it brings the teams in i think you know instead of going seeing jumbo one two three in the Vuelta, like is that good for the sport yeah I, I would say no i mean i don't think so i don't think it's good for the sport speaking of um jumbo obviously gosh they gave us a little bit of frustration slash entertainment at the end of the season with this mm. whole are we merging are we not merging uh, mm. business, losing sponsors. Uh, now, they've come out now and said that they're looking at changing their team name yeah. um, to Yellow B, oh the letter God. B, Yellow B. Uh, and they're doing this because with changing sponsors, they want people to be able to identify to a team rather than to a brand name. Um, yes or no? Um, yellow B sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> Just reminds me of a guy trained with who put on too much weight and then he he's had a yellow jersey and he actually called himself the Bumblebee <laughs> because he looks so too big. I'm not going to name you, mate. But, well, I um, think that that might be part of it because they're called like the Killer Bees because of their kit. Like that's a bit of a nickname, isn't it? Oh, I get I get that. And yes, you want to brand your team. You want to brand. You want to be called. Uh, I mean. I mean the New York the Yankees, right? Yeah, so I, I or get the, the Dodgers, idea. Or yeah, the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Kings or New York Giants or whatever. But um, I understand that. But, but um, maybe Yellow B. Yellow, <laughs> yellow Bs. No, maybe maybe not. Isn't you know. it? Isn't hitting the mark there? No, not for me. <laughs> not for me. It's 
when you're looking at the teams and the budgets and the continuity, mm. you're kind of on the flip side. So your team, I said it at the top of the show, ARA, Pro Racing Sunshine Coast. No, no, oh. ARA, Skip Capital. See, there you go, Skip yep. Capital. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, you've got the Atlassian fellas yes. on board for that. Um, now, if we were looking at that team mm. and you took away that naming sponsor and you called yourself the Sunny Coast Bros. Sunny Sunny Boys. Isn't sunny that an boys. ice cream? Well, there's, uh, it is, but there's sun- also the ladies. So how do we... Sunny girls. Sunny, the sunny boys and the sunny girls. The wave riders. The wave, the riders. wave riders. I don't mind that. Yeah. Um, but then surely ARA and Skip Capital wouldn't be too pumped about that. No, well, no, they pay for the right to be naming sponsors. And how important is so. that to them? It's huge because then they they own piece of they own the piece of the the team, the sport. You know, they're being you know the number one team in Australia. Uh, if that's the case, you know. And they get they, their name by the commentators saying their brands over and over, over again. Over and over again. So, you know, be calling, you know, the yellow bees up the front again, you know. So, you know. The, you, it's such uh, a bad name, isn't it? Yeah, well, ex- exactly. <laughs> it is a shocking name. So, but yeah, I, I understand that. that. That's what, that's, you know, sponsors. Without them, we don't have, you know, we don't we don't have a sport. So, um but yeah, I think that the UCI can do it way better than they're doing it now. They're living in this. They're still living in the eighties. Oh. The UCI are just totally living in the eighties. There's no parody. Um, I think they they are doing some good stuff with women's cycling now compared to where it was. Um, but as far as moving the sport forward, they're still stuck. They're in reverse in in moving it forward. Well, they really don't do anything yeah. to move the sport forward. No you know, sock height and levers. Come on. Like, that's what they're focusing on. That's what they're focusing and, on. And you have to think, coming out of Saudi Arabia, there may be some concerns around their support of women's cycling as well. well that would be a question mark. Oh, 100% you just um, hit the nail on the head. They, they only just let females drive in Saudi Arabia just recently. Yep. Isn't that nice of them? Yeah, hey? how, how, how nice. terribly kind of them. How terribly kind of yeah. them. Another domestic duty for Anyway, us. there goes all the Saudi <laughs> money. This I know. podcast is going to be massive. Oopsie doozy. <laughs> uh, now, turning the focus a bit to your team, Hank, because I mm. want to dive into this a bit. We've been talking about what a mess the UCI is, uh, but thankfully a lot of the races are owned independently and there's a lot of history there. We've got some really great races in Australia mm. um, as well. The Tour of Tassie. I know is one um, that you have enjoyed uh, as a DS and, and watching the results of that. Um, there's also been some rumours that you guys might have a little bit of a twinkle in your eye around the world tour. What about yeah, that? Yeah, uh, obviously that's the goal moving forward in any cycling team, I think. But um, if you do go down that road, you then compromise where are the juniors going. So... Um, yes, it would be fantastic if someone just wrote us a nice big fat check for 20, 20 a year mil because yes. um, that's what you need. I mean, even for a pro tour team, which used to be the pro continental, they call it pro, pro tour now, um, that's, that's 3 million euro. So that's five Australian. Just, just to, for the registration. Just, just oh, pretty much no. budget just because mm. you have to pay a minimum, I think, of 40 seven thousand dollars per person including the swannies mechanics the mm. every, every person has to be paid that minimum wage and that's how it should be um so 
if you do go down the world tour route, then that then suffers with the, the juniors coming out into, you know, under 23, male and female. So right now, that's what we're, we, our whole process is in around, is about mentoring, you know, the juniors. Uh, we do have juniors on the team. We have five or six, three or four uh, ladies and, and um, young men. Um, but yeah, we've got like 27 riders. So, you know, under 23 ladies, under 23 men and junior men and junior ladies. So for us, that's the important thing of having that step. You can't just go from club racing, national championships into the world tour. There's got to be that other stepping stone. That's where Bridge Lane is and Cage Park up and um, Blackshaw Racing and ARA Skip Capital all come in because without those teams, you know, we just don't, you know, there's no pathway and you pretty much got to get on a plane and go to Europe and start entering in Kermes races. Yeah, which so, isn't, um, isn't. which is, a, which a lot of Australians have done in history. So, but, um, you know, we, we, we get bigger every year. So, and we do more races every year and that's, that's, that's kind of our, what we do. On, on the role, uh, Merksy. Hank, do you guys get rewarded like for developing talent? You know, like footy teams do? Like, how does that work? Yeah, they're bringing in a fee if you do come in out of a, um, a development squad into a world tour team. They are bringing that in. I don't know where we're sitting with that. That It has been mentioned. It is going ahead. It's a small $5,000 fee, I think, something from like that. From Cycling from, or from No, UCI? from the team. Oh, from the team. From the oh, team. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, if you're putting three or four riders up a year, then it's good. But, I mean, still pittance really um, doesn't even cover the cost of their group set, just about. But, <laughs> um, so, yeah. but it's something. Um, but I, um, don't quote me on that figure. But, yeah, I know that there, it w- there will be some kind of compensation for that team. And I know that works in soccer really well. Um, teams actually survive on it, but they, you know, they bring a, a young person up and then put them into a bigger team, and they get they get a fee. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up soccer. I know that um, in soccer and in AFL, the players when they have children, and when they're about six or seven, I believe they get talent scouted. Mm. If they appear to have any of the skills, they then kind of get put on a pre-sign list at that club. So the club is trying really hard to hold on to the next generation. Mm. Um, do you think there's any eye in that in cycling? Like if you see the youngster come through uh, from a former pro, would you look more closely at them and be more interested than just your average club rider? Yeah, you 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 would. I mean, you would, but um, that's a difficult one. I mean, obviously well, you we look don't at, have a lot yet, do we? No, we don't. I mean, if you look, if you look at Taylor Finney, his mum was Connie Carpenter yes. and Davis Finney, so you kind of always knew he was going to be a monster um, and end up being world champion time trial. So I mean, yeah, but it's it's a difficult one, and um, I think we even looked at Max Gould this year, who's Gouldies, um, who I race with. And Matt Wilson and and Baden and and Brad McGee and Ben Kirsten, they all we all raced with him, and I think his young bloke is racing. Uh, has got something to do with us next year, so oh, cool. um, that'll be uh, that'll be uh, interesting to see. But yeah, very very cool that they can. That that idea is great, but um, I don't think there's enough 
you know we're not evolved enough yet no perhaps. no we don't our participation isn't huge no. i think in cycling in australia if it's um, not yeah. massive if erska ziggart and her boyfriend what's his name um oh. if they Podgy. have a, a kid yeah, <laughs> oh my lord <laughs> we did uh we joel and i had a bit of fun with this Oh, a couple of episodes, many episodes ago, actually, like the super babies, like who would you marry up to uh, to to get the best genetic offspring? Um, we had some between Van Bloten and Vanderpool. We thought there could be oh my Lord. some some pretty impressive genetics there. Although maybe climbers and climbers to make a super climber. Uh, yes. That, well, yeah, that could be a way to do it. This how old I am. I actually was in the team with Matthew's dad. Audrey. Oh, were you? <laughs> yes, we roomed together. Oh, this, there you this go. This is how old it's feeling. Like, you know, my now my favourite rider ever. He's like, I roomed with his dad. So, you know, it's one yeah. of those watershed moments. Oh, I, and like, I kind of uh, watched, uh, I shared T-Mobile with um, Eric Zabel. Uh, mm. And in fact, I got one of his six-day track bikes mm. uh, when I was on the team. And then uh, when his boy came to the Tour Down Under, I, I felt quite old in that yes. moment. <laughs> say just make you feel old it does make quick you moving feel on old. <laughs> look i've gotten a little bit christmassy so um i've got you a little gift it's a it's a pair of socks hank oh lovely um and they have christmas lights on them and it says let's get lit okay so there you go merry christmas thank you that's what um, the boys said the other day when i went out riding <laughs> with them just got to make sure they're the correct height. Yes, they do. Yeah, they can't be too high. The UCI will be measuring. Uh, Merksy, Thank I've you. got a pair for you. Um, they're gingerbread and it says, bite me. Oh. Um, so they're yours. And uh, Joel, we haven't forgotten you. Um, you have some beer glasses that have been turned into a reindeer. So there you go. Lovely. Thank you, Kate. Hank, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about some of the bigger issues that have been on this week, episode 74 of The Wheelhouse. Like, share, follow, subscribe, uh, and all that jazz. Merry Christmas.